Welcome back to the Readcast. Um, today is a special day. Uh, we have a wonderful, wonderful guest on our show today. Um, he is someone I started following here recently on Twitter um, and has been very um, enlightening and encouraging and, and just a, a gift, uh, I think, for Twitter that, that we don't really understand um sometimes but uh but um we have uh cal j howard today um and so we're going to be breaking down some stuff uh about racial trauma spiritual abuse and just kind of the the whole gambit of stuff in that in that range so so all right so mr mr howard um uh, hey, what's up? Yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, no problem, no problem. Um, and I hope all of your your family is well and good and everything. So, um, but yeah, but uh, what uh, what led you to become a counselor? Yeah, that was not the plan. Um, it wasn't the goal. Um, so in 2012, uh, I moved my family, my wife, and at the time, my two children, three year old and two and six month old. Um, to Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Um, the past several years, I had been studying um, history. I'm a big history nerd. And I moved up there with the desire to pursue deeper studies in uh, historical theology. Um, I did my undergrad. And so I did an associates in theological and biblical studies at Southern Seminary. Uh, then I did, um, I was actually just, um, so I started late. I was like 28 in college, starting college with two kids. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and, um, and so for me, it was like for my undergrad, I want to get through my undergrad as fast as possible so I can get to my MDiv. And so I was taking 18 credits a semester, um, and I was just trying to get out of it. And one of the th- one of the components there of getting out was – so I was, I was majoring in preaching. But uh, my background, my parents are lawyers, and so I, I've been, I was trained in rhetoric and public speaking since I was a child. And so the preaching major really didn't do anything to, for me because I was already kind of well-versed in public speaking. Right. And the preaching major required two years of languages, both Greek and Hebrew. And for me, I was like, well, you know, I can get that at my master's level. I don't want to spend another two years in my undergrad just for the languages. Right. And the only undergrad degree that I could get that didn't allow me to have to take languages was a counseling degree. Fair enough. And so <laughs> in God's providence, it was OK. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and take counseling. And kind of as a side note, it's kind of backtracking a little bit. So when I was 12 years old, I had my first uh, bout with uh, depression and um, severe depression, suicidal level depression. It wasn't until I was 18 that I'd be uh, diagnosed with bipolar. So for six years, I struggled with severe suicidal depression, and no one really knew about that except for me. Um, My high school sweetheart, who's now my wife, uh, she knew about about it. She was present through some of my uh, episodes, if you would, but it was largely kept secret, more or less. 
And um, there wasn't really any kind of comfort or any kind of an encouragement or anything like that that I found in regards to counseling or therapy. And so when I when I the, the, my introduction to counseling class, it just opened up a whole new world for me. It was like here here is the uh, the Bible being opened up, and not just simply pray your suffering away, but it's ministering the Word of God uh, to people with uh, with troubles and problems and challenges and issues. And I mean, it just it just hit me and connected with me in a, in a unique way because it it brought uh, answers and and I guess you could say helps to areas of my own life uh, that I wasn't really finding anywhere else and even wasn't finding in the church. Again, I mean, especially within my tradition. So uh, I came, I became my first year as a believer, I went through the Bible maybe about four or five times okay. and became reformed. I became reformed just through reading the Bible and uh, Calvinistic. And so I, I've been a part of that, I guess you could say the reformed camp, if you would. Right. And that camp really champions expository preaching, uh, which I believe in, but at the same time, um, because of the restrictedness, if you would, of expository preaching, it doesn't often really get to the kind of issues that deal with uh, things such as lament, things such as suffering, things such as trauma, you know, all those kinds of things. And so here I was in in this counseling, introduction to counseling, and it was like, hey, this is the, uh, I guess you could just say genre of theological study that actually deals with the practical of taking the theological concepts and breaking it down into how to minister these truths um, to a soul. And I fell in love with it, and it, it became more than just simply how to get out of my undergrad as fast as possible to something that I just simply, you know, enjoyed and just really just relished in. And so, I began my degree in, in biblical counseling. Um, and um, once I graduated from there, my goal was still the same. It was still uh, one day pastor, plant and pastor. But when it came to academia, it was to pursue um, advanced degrees in historical theology. Uh, disappear somewhere, pass through a small church, and uh, write some books on history. And uh, and what ended up happening was um, once I graduated, I was I was a lay leader in my church. I was had a kind of a small group of about thirty people who I was my wife and I were both mentoring and discipling. And when I graduated, almost right after that, I started getting well. In the midst of of that doing that, once I gra- I graduated, I started getting all these crisis counseling cases, everything from adultery to, um, I mean, I mean, there was just across the list of issues of just like these situations where people were like, we're getting a divorce when it came to marriage counseling, uh, again, suicidal depression with other people to, um, just all kinds of issues. And so the Lord used my education and kind of thrusted me directly in to, uh, Sokia. And uh, the more I did it, the more I saw the Lord's hand on it, the Lord blessing that ministry, the more, more I saw that I, I did have the gifts of discernment and other uh, gifts that make counseling, in a sense, effective. And so right. I just kind of fell in love uh, with doing that. And uh, and so I, I ultimately got into uh, Christian counseling, uh, soul care, through um, – Providence of, <laughs> hey, let me find a way to get out of the undergrad degree as fast as possible <laughs> to, in some sense, finding a calling um, within that. Awesome, man. That is, uh, that's a definite, that's a, that's a really, I don't know, you hear a lot of guys talk about that. Um, you know, they're going to go get their degree and they're going to learn all this stuff to pastor a church and, you know, I'm going to go get a degree in this or this 
dead writer or whatever to go do this. Um, but I like I like your story how it's just like, well, I just want to get out of this and, and get be done with it. Um, and you just fell into yeah, it. And it, it not just, that spiritual, fam. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's just well, and it, it's it's awesome to see God work that way though, where it's like that was His plan for you, um, and He knew how you worked because He made you and He put you into that spot, and and that's to me that's awesome. Um, that's really, really cool. Um, but with that, um, I know you specialize in racial trauma and, uh, spiritual abuse. And here on the show, me and my wife, we have talked about our spiritual abuse coming from a a church we spent about five years in almost. Um, one we planted twice, (laughs) um, and reopened and all this other stuff. Um, and it's left scars and bruises and deep cuts that are still in us today, years later. Um, but with that, how did you fall in to to those to that realm side of counseling? I know you do some other counseling still and everything like that, but but with that specialty of racial trauma and spiritual abuse, how did that? How did you fall into that, or how did you get into that? Experientially, <laughs> fair, fair. So uh, yeah, so um, when I started, as I mentioned before, uh, just by God's providence, um, I was placed in situations where I was dealing with, I guess you could say, crisis counseling issues. And uh, within that, um, there were a decent amount of uh, people who I was caring for who themselves had trauma, Um, uh, largely issues of sexual abuse. And so I was caring for uh, uh, sisters specifically and other dynamics related to men as well, but uh, within the realm of, I guess, of sexual abuse and the trauma that comes. And so sexual abuse, everything from molestation to rape. And, um, And so... That was kind of the ward that I was already kind of in. And because of my own um, challenges as it relates to depression and everything else, I kind of understood um, the the lows or that dark season of the soul that kind of comes after uh, traumatic experiences um, that, you know, that led me to, in a sense, empathize in a unique way with uh, people who um, had various degrees of trauma. And so, but again, sexual abuse was, yes, my ministry is comprehensive. So marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, um, all, you know, every, any, any kind of counseling, but as it related to trauma, it was specifically, uh, sexual abuse was kind of the main, uh, area that I was working in, uh, fast forward to about 2014, 2015. Okay. And this is when a time when you have Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, and then ultimately Eric Garner. Right. And, uh, and then. You know, the list just goes on of all these unarmed uh, black men who were killed. And um, I, I think the biggest one, the most deciding factor was with with um, uh, Mark, uh, Eric Garner, excuse me, who was choked to death as he was crying out, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And so I come from a family of lawyers. Uh, my dad is a criminal defense attorney. My mom is a state pro- uh, is a civil attorney. My brother was a state prosecutor. And so when it came to the cases of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, I knew, just legally speaking, that there wasn't going to be any recourse for those situations. There wasn't going to. I knew that Zimmerman was going to get off because I understood the stand your, stand your ground law. I understood. I knew the cops were going to get off because I understood the laws related to those. And so I didn't really speak about those things, but but I also kind of assumed that um, evangelicals, specifically, I guess you could say, my camp, reformed evangelicals, would be in in common understanding as it related to the Imago Day and the preciousness of these souls that were lost, even right. if it was some dynamics related to uh, or some ambiguity related to um, whether it was just or unjust, more or less. But with Eric Garner, it was crystal clear. He was a man that was choked to death as he's crying out, I can't breathe. 
Yeah. And and I remember posting that um, video with a, a comment of the injustice on on my Facebook. And I had several uh, seminarians, white seminarians, reach out to me saying, hey, I thought you were talking about I thought you were one of us. Uh, why are you talking about these things? Oh, wow. And uh, at that moment, it was like, whoa, one of us. What does this mean? What do you mean by that? And what I ultimately learned was that what they what they were saying was that, hey, because I went to Southern Seminary, because I was at a predominantly white church, that they assumed that I was assimilated culturally and that I was no longer concerned with issues that impacted the black community, which wasn't the case. But that was kind of a microcosm of something that else that was happening, which was I started getting more and more counselees um, that were coming to me with uh, profound pain that was related to um, issues that they had in their churches, racial indifference and sensitivity, racism, and various other kinds of things. Uh, then you have Trump come along. Um, and with Donald Trump, there was a lot of racist rhetoric. There was a lot of racist actions in his past and other kinds of things. And then the more that that started happening, uh, and the, it wasn't just the racist stuff. It was also the bragging of sexual assault and those other things. Because, again, remember, I dealt with a lot of women who had been raped or abused or sexually right. assaulted. And so from women to minorities, I started having more counselees that were profoundly hurt um, due to the way in which the church was responding uh, to the election or the campaign of Donald Trump. And it wasn't that there weren't other options. It was that that was who they were drawn to. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, as the course went by, the justifications that also came and the dismissals. And so uh, for me personally, at the end of the day, um, I was dealing with my own trauma um, from being in evangelical spaces. Um, right. Things got pretty uh, severe for me um, and my wife. Um, we, we didn't go on campus for about a year and a half just because of the level of hostility uh, that was on campus for me due to speaking about uh, things that concern the black community. Um, ultimately, uh, we lost our church. We lost all our friends. We lost all of our relationships uh, because I, um, amongst, be, let me think of the best way to say this, because I was unassimilated as it related, relates to the coach, the political convictions of, of, um, and even ecclesiological convictions, meaning that, hey, if you're, if, you're, if you're pursuing ministry, you shouldn't talk about politics or you shouldn't right. say anything about race issues because that's divisive, you know, that whole rhetoric. Yeah. And so because I didn't fit that mode and because I was, uh, did not, wasn't willing to assimilate, um, we ultimately lost um, pretty much the past six years of our, our lives in, in ministry. Oh, wow. And what ultimately happened, so... As I was experiencing this, I'm also getting more and more stories of other people, not just locally, but across the country, who are reaching out to me because I'm a, a voice on these things. Um, and I'm getting more, I'm like, hey, this is not just me. This is an actual pattern um, of people who have essentially race-based um, profound pain, if you would. And so that's when I began putting the pieces together as it relates to trauma. It was like, okay, I'm seeing all these trauma symptoms. I'm seeing symptoms of PTS uh, related to whether it be uh, the shootings and watching all these public shootings, or some people put it lynchings of black bodies, or whether it was people in the church who just experienced profound indifference and uh, to their own hurts. Um, but these, the people that are coming to me are coming to me with like serious trauma. 
so as I was putting all these pieces together, um, there wasn't really a, there, there were non categories, um, especially within the church. The church had no, has no categories for understanding things like racial trauma, at least the the evangelical church. And um, and so um, what I did was I took my uh, experience in historical theology or history, um, and used that and to reflect on the. Um, the, I guess you could say the plight of um, uh, the black community and indigenous community in America, okay. and al- also taking the history of that women's suffrage and all those other kinds of things. And um, what what I ultimately did was t- I took that aspect, took my theology and then biblical counseling experience, even with trauma, and I started seeking, is there a way to wet all this together to make sense of what I'm seeing? And um, there was. Uh, when you think about uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, I wrote an article about that, how in Dr. King's letter, when he's responding to um, the white moderates, or evangelicals of his day, about them telling him that he should wait and not do the civil rights marches, right. um, his response was, well, I can't wait because I've seen what the airtight cage of poverty does to my community. I've seen what it's done to my own children as I see the clouds of inferiority welling up in the, the, the mental sky of my daughter. I've right. seen my son developing racism towards white. And so he, he lays out all these things about I've seen the trauma that my black community, that the black community, my people have experienced. I cannot wait. It's it's killing them. It's wounding them. And uh, if I could just take a step back real quick. So one of the ways that I've defined trauma in a very basic and simple term is that trauma is like haunting pain. Uh, when you think about a ghost. Um, a ghost is something that haunts a haunts a place. Right. And so you see those movies like Exorcism or Ghostbusters. You have a ghost that stays in a, a location and it basically haunts it. Right. And um, Ghostbusters come and their job or exorcist comes and their job is essentially to remove the ghost. And well, trauma is like haunting pain. It's pain that is not just happens in one moment, but it's something that it's it's pain that is so profound that it follows an individual throughout their life, preventing them from comprehensive flourishing. And and so the fact is that there are profoundly painful mo- mo- um, um, realities or experiences within the lives of many uh, black people and um, and other people of color that um, haunts them. And with them, it's unique because we're talking about a generational haunting. We're talking about things that have passed on generationally for hundreds of years. Right. And we and we see the ramifications now. We live in a context in a society, especially and tragically, even evangelical spaces, where um, instead of looking at the generational trauma, people will look at what they see and simply say, well, the problem is um, uh, black people just aren't educated or they just make poor fathers or um, they won't look at the generational trauma of separating black families and seeking to dis- systemically destroy the black family for hundreds of years. And what we're seeing now is the fruit of that systemic attempt to destroy the black family. Right. Um, we don't see that um, they'll, just, they'll, they'll stereotype in regards to, say, black people are drug dealers and crime and this, that, and the other. They don't see the realities of redlining and how systemic racism de- de- created uh, the ghettos and created a sense of desperation uh, within a marginalized community. They don't see those things. you know. And so the trauma is the haunting pain of what happens when one lives in racial trauma, excuse me, is the haunting pain of what happens to an individual when they live inside a racialized society and that they are the lowest people within that racial caste system that that society has established. 
And it is the fruit of that, of being in that posture and what one experiences or one endures in being in such a posture. And uh, historically, that's included uh, rape, kidnapping, torture, bondage, um, again, the breaking up of, of the family, psychological warfare, such as burning crosses and lawns and monuments of civil uh, Confederate soldiers at courthouses to remind black people that the, the laws of the land are white supremacy. And so there's been, whether it's psychological terrorism or whether it's um, other methods of um, abuse, those realities plague entire communities. The same can be said again about indigenous communities um, and the, the almost genocide um, that took place in many indigenous communities. And so I got into the work to kind of sum all that up. I got into the work of racial trauma because um, in I began, not only did I experience personally, but then I began to receive a lot of counselees who were sharing the same kind of stories about profound haunting pain in their lives um, due to um, uh, racism that, um, and specifically racism in the church. And um, and because of that, and there's a unique dynamic of pain there because we're talking about covenant family, people who you consider to be a family who you've entered into a covenant with, who right. even your even your spiritual text, the Bible that you believe is the revelation of God, speaks about how the the family of Christ is supposed to be bonded together in the blood of Christ, closer than any other relationship, and those people are the ones that that wound in such a profound and deep way. And um, because there was no one else really engaged or talking about these things, I felt that um, I needed to <laughs> and uh, that these were things that needed to be made or people needed to be aware of because there were people who were languishing in the church, people who were suffering in the church, um, not just minorities, mind you, but uh, uh, white Christians as well who have also grown up in a racialized society and have developed uh, racist ideas or racialized ideas and conceptions yeah. uh, that keep them from faithfully loving their black and brown brothers and sisters rather than rather than having a posture of dismissiveness and agitation at them uh, when they lament. And so I, I think that it, there's a comprehensive need uh, for all the saints of God to come to terms with the reality that we live in a racialized society, a society that is built on the lie of race that has been used to oppress, to marginalize and divide. And the church has often been complicit in that division. And um, we have yet, the church has yet to break its chains of bondage from the ideological lies of race and racism and those kinds of things. And so we're still profoundly divided uh, over these issues. And so I think that raising awareness for racial trauma um, is part of the necessity for ethnic reconciliation to truly happen and, and be truly genuine. No, I, man, that's, uh, I 100% agree. Um, and that's beautifully put. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff um, because I was one of those kids, one that grew. I didn't really grow up in church and whatnot, but uh, when I did start going to church, um, those racial biases um, weren't taught as racism. Even they were just taught as like this normalcy type of thing, which to me made them even more dangerous um, because it was taught just to be normal. Um, you know, mm -hmm. everything from toxic masculinity to uh, toxic complementarianism, 
Um, and then when we got to uh, racial divides, it was it was even worse um, than than some of those areas. Um, and so, yeah, I, I completely agree that your your job and your path that the God, that God has put you on is incredibly needed. Um, and then there's tons of people that that need someone like you to to step in and go, hey, it's okay, you know, um, let let's talk about this. So that that's awesome. Um, but uh, uh, thank you. But but with that, what um what makes um and we'll start with with uh, spiritual abuse. What makes spiritual abuse um so harmful and traumatic you know about going to a church and you know um which which aspect of that is it that we go to a church and we feel secure um and that no one can hurt us or or what is that yeah i think that that's that's an excellent question that's excellent question sorry give me one second here oh you're good and um uh, sorry about that and um so when when we think about in order for in some sense we're talking about uh, relational trauma so trauma that exists because of relational breaches if you would right um essentially all of the, that kind of trauma is the result of entrusting someone with power so if you think think about domestic abuse and the trauma that comes with that there is an entrusting a spouse uh, with, uh, your heart, right. you, you, you know, and you, 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 you love them. You essentially give them your heart. You're entrusting their heart. That is a powerful thing to entrust your affections, your heart and devote yourself to someone. Right. And when someone violates that, um, in um, in a profound way that, that hurts in a very, very deep way, way more than simply a stranger. You know, a, a stranger can a stranger can uh, hurt you. A stranger can say things, but because of the level of of exchange that happens in a marriage, um, that uh, something that a spouse says is going to hurt you way, way deeper than a stranger. Right. Oh yeah. And uh, what I would say, and is that when you think about the church, you're talking about individuals who have entrusted not just their heart, but have also entrusted their soul. And so the most deepest, the most fundamental aspect of who we are, um, comprehensively. So again, so thinking in the context of uh, soul and body. So if you, so if whether you take trichotomy or dichotomy position, that we are both spiritual and physical beings. Right. The church is a place where you entrust both your heart and soul under the care of pastors. And uh, to a community of people as well. And when that kind, that level of trust is breached and violated, not just simply in the sense of something happening that is that leads to, say, someone lies or something simple, but when it happens in a profound degree where you, the very core of you is, in sense, is essentially betrayed, um, that is a that is a deep violation. And because of the depth and the level of trust that has been given, the kind of power that has been given um, to other covenant members and especially to pastors, right. uh, when, when that is violated, we're talking about something that 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 hits at the very core of you. Um, similarly, I mean, it's, it's said often, and I think it's very it's, there's a, there's absolutely a truth to it that uh, psychological abuse. 
emotional and psychological abuse leaves longer lasting scars than physical abuse. Oh, 100%. And, and the physical abuse leaves uh, visible wounds and it hurts, but it's those psychological and emotional scars that, that, are that, that is the haunting pain that, that carries and haunts you throughout your life. Likewise, when someone wounds you even deeper than the heart but into your very soul, that, ha- that, that has a very profound uh, impact. So like for instance, I'm, I'm actually – one of the books that I'm working on right now um, in the early stages of is a book that uh, is more likely to be called uh, When the Church Becomes a Trigger. And uh, my goal in that book is going to be going through all these different categories of of dynamics that are triggering for people with spiritual trauma. So like when worship becomes a trigger, when uh, community becomes a trigger, when leadership and authority becomes a trigger, you know, where fellowship becomes a trigger. So, again, I'm going to go through all these categories and talk about how uh, when someone has spiritual trauma, how all these things that used to lead to deep uh, and it said soul flourishing are now obstacles. Uh, to someone and things that someone is, is even flees because they see these things as being uh, uh, threats rather than being things that give life. And, and so w- when someone is violated on a spiritual level, it has profound spiritual ramifications, um, whether that be uh, another chapter, when the Bible becomes a trigger, whether that be not being able to even read the word and really be able to dwell on the word of God because the people have wielded um, the word of God as a weapon to hurt you, to harm you, to oppress you, um, to silence you. When uh, people, when worship, um, when again, even worship songs become uh, a trigger because it was people who wounded you who song the, sung those songs. And right. so now those songs more resemble hypocrisy than they do actual things of delight. And so, I mean, there's a a deep rabbit hole that one can go in and just dealing with all those things. Uh, But what I I would say is that uh, spiritual abuse is is so profound and is so deep because we're talking about uh, trauma and we're talking about violation that goes to the very soul of an individual. And deals with the the various things that Jesus said himself so that should bring life are used to, to, to bring death into an individual's life. And having to reconcile or heal the dynamic of that which should be bringing you life now, bringing you death, to being something now that again now is back to bring you life, um, that, that's, that's difficult. And it, it requires a miracle. It can't be done without the Holy Spirit. It can't be done without the Lord. Uh, but it but it is a a profoundly challenging dynamic to to work through. And and um, honestly, it's some it's if there was anything that the church should be aware of and guarding against, it should be spiritual trauma. But it is the it is it's essentially not even a concern um, in most uh, church spaces. It's a non-category. And because it's a non-category, many churches actually exasperate the problem rather than help it. Yeah, no, uh, I w- with that last sentiment, um, especially, I, it hits home for me. Um, and, and really, all of it, uh, like I said previously, you know, me and my wife went through a lot of that type of stuff as well. Um, you know, my daughter learned to walk in the church we experienced spiritual abuse in. Um, we were married at 18, 19 years old, uh, super young, had a kid and all this other stuff. And, uh, yeah, it, we just, 
we were just broken about that. Um, and especially people not knowing about it. So when we did our other episode about, you know, surviving the church, as we called it, um, someone messaged me. I haven't talked to in almost nah, nine years, almost. And uh, they're like, hey, I never knew. And they sat beside us in the pews and they did all this stuff. And they never knew <laughs> this stuff was going on day to day from this this pastor who we trusted and who, you know, I, we were his right hand. And, you know, we were living the, 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 the dream of a church planner. And he's like, I'm so very sorry. I, kn- I knew something was wrong, but I thought it was just because you were young, which I understood, um, you know, and uh, yeah. And so, but yeah, and so, yeah, no one knows. And then when we did come out with it, um, honestly, you're right. No one deals with it. No one wants to because no one wants to destruct, deconstruct or tear down that power structure that we've made out of the church, that pyramid scheme of the church that we have made or allowed to flourish throughout the years. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's insane. Um, and we're now... My wife, we're just in our the really this is our first year of what we call our awakening of you know our renaissance of coming out and going this enough's enough we're done with spiritual abuse and uh, we're no longer scared to share you know our stuff about it so yeah and um and that that's a place that I look forward to getting at there may come a day when I write write a memoir (laughs) (laughs) um there's still a dynamic of healing right now where it's kind of like if um if i was to share our story it would open the floodgates to a lot of drama no and that's and, all respect there because i mean it, it is yeah. between you and god and and oh and no no yeah I, I didn't receive it years. i yeah 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 <laughs> i i understand 100 percent, and it, it and yeah it's it's a pace um uh-huh. that yeah and it, again the, the for different people comes a different you know dynamics oh yeah oh, uh, yeah. something that you said though that i really think really gets to one of the hearts of the matter is that and this isn't speaking to uh, your friend or the person you know, but just want to speak more in general to it is that what I've come to realize in the work that I've done is that it's not a, for most cases, it's not a matter of people not knowing. It's a matter of people not wanting to see. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of the best and most, most gracious way of saying this. Oh, yeah. All the signs are there. So much so that you don't even you don't have to be a professional like myself in trauma to see those signs. It's that because of the kind of power dynamics that typically are at play in a church, uh, because of the way in which we treat pastors with um, with no accountability, uh-huh. people don't want to believe that their church is a church that actually wounds sheep rather than than heals them. Yeah. And so they will turn a blind eye to all the things they will they will see. They will. And I'll, let me give you a couple of examples because I, I think this is so important. And I, I know this is going to probably step on some toes. Oh, bring it. But um, <laughs> something that's very often, individuals leave a church. They leave the church and they actually do speak up. Right. And so they say, "This is what happened to me." But when they speak up, they they are so deeply traumatized by the experience, and often they don't even know that they are traumatized by the experience. But when they talk about what happens to them, they can even sound almost borderline crazy because they haven't really 
you know, process. They haven't really worked through what they've experienced. They just know that I've been spiritually violated. Right, right, right. And, and, um, and so they're communicating what will typically happen. These churches will dismiss, especially the abusers, the pastors will dismiss these people of having some kind of grudge, these people being unstable and all these kinds of things. When the reality is that they've actually just been traumatized. But they'll be dismissed by, hey, these people are just unstable. They just had a bad experience. We're sorry about that. Typically, pastors will act super, um, you know, apologetic. You know, I'm so sorry they felt this way. You know, this, that, and the other, and all that can be covered. And in my experiences, that has happened over and over and over again. But because each one of those people are dismissed. It just essentially is eventually is just put under the rug and then people just go on their merry way as if nothing ever happened. And what will typically happen in churches where things begin actually being exposed and finding out is that it will always it'll be that person where they're like, this guy, surely something's off here because we know th- this person is leaving under these mysterious circumstances. What's yep. what's going What's happening? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's when people start asking questions like because it almost gets I can't deny that something's amiss here. Yeah. But what I will go further to say that is most tragic is even in those situations, the most common response is that people will turn and look the other way. Because even in those situations, what the last thing that anybody wants to believe is that their church is that church and their pastors are that pastor. And uh, what I would argue is that I believe that every one of those people who know that are culpable. I believe, and some of this has to come with the fact of me being congregational, right. I believe that the congregation is culpable to an to the damage that an abusive pastor does, because a congregation should be holding their pastor accountable to a degree where they're asking certain questions when people are leaving without and, and there's no without any reason, and they and, and they're just kind of swept under the rug, right, and right. it's. Yeah, so that's one one of the challenges with dealing with spiritual trauma, spiritual abuse, is and and I'll define what I mean when I say spiritual abuse in a second. But one of the challenges with that is that it's hard to raise awareness when no one wants to be wants the church to be exposed. Right, it's like being so chicken little this, a little bit. Yeah, so when you think about even the Southern Baptist Convention right now, almost over eight hundred cases of sexual abuse that have been covered up. And growing. No, yeah, and as the numbers are going up, and no one, why did it last so long? Because no one wanted to say anything, because of the embarrassment. No, no one wanted to believe that it's all convention, it's all denomination, yeah. and so people don't say anything, and it just keeps getting worse, worse, and worse. And 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 so the one of the challenges is commissioning people that hey, you don't have a choice. If you have, if you feel like there may be spiritual abuse going on, that your pastors may be abusing their power and wounding sheep, then as a member of that church, you will, you are culpable to that abuse if you do not speak up. Yeah. And I don't, when I say speak up, I don't mean without any kind of evidence, without any kind of thing, you just, you know, indict your pastor at a members <laughs> meeting, you know, but it does mean that you ask your pastors questions. It yeah. does mean that if someone leaves your church and seems to just have drifted away or been swept under the rug, that you pursue those people and say, hey, what's going on? Why do you leave? And when they, when they tell you, you don't um, just dismiss it. Um, even if they're in some degrees incoherent with the explanations to have categories of, you know, maybe this person's telling the truth. They just haven't come to a place where even they know what's really happened. Right. And so 
So churches need churches, especially members, need to be more considerate and more careful and and more and be willing to listen more, and uh, and um, hold each other accountable. To say that, hey, I, as a member of this church, as a covenant member, I've made a covenant to this person who's left or this person who is claiming to be wounded. I can't just dismiss them. I owe it before God in my that covenant that covenant of membership I made. I need to pursue these individuals. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's, and I mean, everything you just said, it's like we lived it. Um, you know, ours was swept under the rug. Ours was, oh, they're going to plant a church or they're going to do this. Because um, I was lucky enough to actually have one of my best friends growing up in that same church. Um, and they're now, they have now left as well for other issues. Um, so we would get like these reports of like, or we would ask, hey, has anyone asked about us? You know, and he's like, no, they were just told you you just left, and that's it, you know? And so, like, one of our big red flags going into a church now forward um, for spiritual abuse is, can I question you? And, I, like, I ask stupid questions. Like, if I ask a pastor, um, do dogs go to heaven as a 30-year-old man and he gets pissy with me, um, that is a red flag to me because if you just answer the question you know it's like just be gracious and kind um you know we'll ask real big questions about complementarianism about women leadership about uh how secure and safe are the women in your church that one's got people riled up before um you know and all these things and uh depending on how they answer we don't go to that church because you know most people who are doing nothing wrong have nothing to hide and we found most pastors who have something to hide, especially pride or decision-making or malpractice um, of leading their flock, usually have nothing to, uh, usually have a lot to hide. Um, and so it's, it's definitely a, uh, a rabbit trail in and of itself when you start following it. Um, and I am happy to see there are more people coming out and talking about these stories and everything. So... But um, I guess my next question would have to be with this, and I and I think you hit on it quite a bit too, um, is uh, what is your opinion on spiritual abuse being so incredibly rampant, and mostly uh, the evangelical and fundamental churches nowadays. Yeah. So, and and this is a good time to, to, to so just to define when I say spiritual abuse, because that 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 can come off kind of ambiguous, and a lot of right. people wonder, okay, what is spiritual abuse? Is any other? And the way that I explain it is that so spiritual abuse is an umbrella, and there are a, it's an umbrella that kind of um, provides shade or covers a lot of things, and there are specific kinds of abuse under that umbrella, and so sexual abuse, um, gaslighting. Um, and you know, man, you know, manipulation, uh, physical abuse. Um, you can, I mean, there's just a ton of different racial trauma, racial abuse. Right. There's, right. there's tons of different kinds of abuses that are under the umbrella of uh, uh, spiritual abuse. What makes it spiritual abuse is when someone who has been granted spiritual power um, is the one who is causing that pain or causing that abuse. And so, spiritual abuse is simply the experience of some kind of abuse that is being experienced that is happening at the hands of people in and with with spiritual power over you 
So again, if a pastor uh, um, abuses a child, if you would, that is a child abuse. It's you know could be sexual abuse, but it's also going to be spiritual abuse because of the spiritual component of someone who, in, within the spiritual realm, if you would, is the one who's enacting that that uh, that uh, betrayal. Does that make sense? Right. And so. And so there's a there's a multitude of different kinds of abuses that become, in a sense, baptized abuses when they're done by someone with spiritual authority or spiritual power. And and in that they become spiritual abuse as well as whatever other kind of abuse that that may be. And and so when we think about so so take that. So I just wrote an article recently um, called Complementarity and Domestic Abuse, and I talk about how. Within uh, hyper-complementarianism, there are certain ideas and beliefs that uh, perpetuate abuse and, and or make abuse easier. Right. Uh, con- conceptions like uh, permanence, um, that you, you cannot, uh, for any reason, get a divorce. Men have wielded, abusive men wield that as a weapon against their wives, so their wives cannot leave them, and they are free to continue abusing them. Um, other issues as it relates to uh, women in the church. I mean, right now, um, just to be keep it 100, um, all the uh, online bullying and abuse right. that's happened to Beth Moore over the past, um, who's a dear friend of mine, that has happened over the past week. Yep. Where it's not just simple disagreement. It's, yo, we're going to troll her. We're going to write articles about her. We're going to attack her. We're going to silence and discredit this woman at all costs. And it's it's one, it's sickening. Uh, but two, um, those that 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 there is a certain kind of ideas or philosophy of men and women, uh, and that uh, perpetuates or fuels that kind of treatment. And as you mentioned, it seems like the people who tend uh, to uh, practice those kinds of things are, are people that fall within the lot that's the stream of fundamentalism. And um and and what was the, you said fundamentalism and was there another category in, in the evangelical side yeah yeah and so what I would say to that is a couple of things one it's very important to understand that the Bible itself is powerful yeah it is it is a tool of power and um and it's that power can either be uh, unto salvation, for sp- power to spiritually nourish, sp- power to build up, power to encourage, power to convert, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or it can be used as power to silence, power to oppress, power to marginalize, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this isn't new information. Slave masters knew about the power of the Bible, which is why they removed sections of the Bible right. before they gave them to slaves, because they knew that if we gave certain te- powerful texts to slaves, that it would mobilize them. Right. You know, right. You know, and there's certain passages of scripture or text that are powerful. And so it, it benefits to interpret those texts in a specific kind of way that allows people to um, uh, marginalize other people. So to get really specific here, there, what, what's happened over the past week is you have people saying, hey, women can't preach. Yeah. Um, it's not just a matter of women um, in eldership, but women can't preach at all. <laughs> and women can't, especially cannot preach to men. Um, and especially on a Sunday Mother's Day sermon or whatnot. 
one, that's going beyond what is written. Yep. And two, that's all about power. Yeah. The dynamic is that we need to constrain the power that women wield in the church. And the way we're going to do that, preaching is powerful. The proclamation of the word is powerful. And so we are going to go beyond what is written, uh, but claim it is written <laughs> uh, because that's where the power is. And so when you think about fundamentalism, fundamentalists are essentially people who uh, pride themselves on being uh, biblicists, being those who all the Bible, everything's the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Um, but they have a very rigid interpretation of the scriptures, and they they hold to that view because they understand, again, one, that the, the Bible is power, the Bible is powerful. And then two, because the Bible is powerful to them, they uh, will the Bible as a means of power, not to serve, not to build up, not to encourage, but to obtain greater power. So an example of that would be how uh, fundamentalists, once uh, you have the whole fundamentalist evangelical kind of crossover, what was the means in which they embraced in order to uh, advance their cause? Politics. It was aligning with polit politicians and seeking out political power and essentially baptizing that political power. Um, again, Donald Trump recognizes the power uh, that comes in in in, this, in in the Bible and in Christian culture, and so he's you know he rallies around himself these spiritual gurus. Um, he shows up unexpectedly at certain churches. Yeah. He does all these kinds of things because again he recognizes that hey, this this power and 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 I'm trying to think of a, a better way of saying this, but this power in Bible thumping. <laughs> you know, I like and, that. I like uh, that. I hope you know what I mean by that. I'm not. Oh yeah. The, the, oh yeah. The Bible thumping of hitting people on the, over the head with the Bible—that's a power move. Yeah. And it makes people who lust for power feel powerful. And fundamentalists love Bible thumping, and that's part of the fundamentalist culture—is Bible thumping. You know, and so it's not a coincidence that when you see a spiritual abuse. You typically are going to see that happening by people who misappropriate power. Yeah. You know, and who look at the, the things of power in a way other than the way that Christ looked at them. The first will be last, the last will be first. That you're granted power to serve. You power is especially for pastors, power is a gift that's given to you to mobilize you to serve. Yeah. It's not not to lord it over anyone. It's you're empowered to care for people, to love people, to serve them, to advocate, you know, and all these kinds of things. But again, if the, the fundamentalist culture, as generally speaking, is a culture that has an infatuation with power, social power, um, political power, um, socioeconomic power, when you think about money, so you think about TBN and prosperity, theology, and all those kinds of things, everything kind of evolves around power. Who are the people who are most admired and esteemed? The powerful people. You know, and so I, I think one of the reasons why uh, within evangelicalism, which is essentially the offshoot of fundamentalism, kind of fundamental, fundamentalism reborn, um, is uh, inclined towards these abuses because of the culture and because it's a, it's a culture that, in a sense, prides itself on, on power.
And 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 so now again, abuse happens in all contexts, right? Right. Across the sphere. So we think about the Catholic Church, um, even within liberal churches, ab- abuse just runs rampant because we're all sinners. Uh, but there are certain there's a certain extra propensity uh, towards abusing spiritual power within um, evangelical and fundamentalist traditions. Again, because of how they how they wield the Bible, and I use that term "wield" intentionally, not how they use, how they minister, how they serve, but how they wield the Bible. Yeah, and they wield it as a weapon. They love singing hymns about soldiers of truth, and uh, the Bible being a sword, a double-edged sword that can cut away at people. Yeah, you know, and they 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 the songs, the ideology is, hey, we're warriors and we're fighters and we're going to attack. It's not we're servants, we're lovers, we're gentle, we're caring. No, because and, those are and, too feminine. Yeah, that that that's where you get that other those other kind of get. So then you get then you get into the masculinity dynamics and all those other kinds Ooh. of things. <laughs> Damn, it's side note. It's so profoundly ironic to me that the people who most champion biblical manhood have been the ones who have been acting the most cowardly over the past week. Preach. Where it's it, so men invite women into pulpits to preach. They ain't attacking the men. They're not criticizing the men. Yep. They're going after women. Yep. So again, when you think of someone like Beth Moore, <laughs> one of the most sweetest, godliest people on this planet, and I don't exaggerate when I say that, they're going to go after her. They're not going to go after the pastor who is inviting her to come speak, who's a former NFL player. Right, <laughs> He's right. In, and it's, and it's it, so backwards on that whole system that that we champion these men of God and David and all this other stuff. Yippee, yippee, you. But yet, like you're saying, we want to we, we attack the least because guess what? Um, from what I found, most of those men that attack those women are usually the ones who have no idea what they are to begin with and are struggling with some existential identity crisis from the start. Um, not oh, to absolutely. judge the character, but to judge, like, to, when I know I do that, when I when I attack the lowest of these, not to say women are below us, and I'm not saying that, guys, please don't hate uh, I, me. I get what you're saying. Um, but we're, we're attacking someone who didn't bring it on themselves. If, if, if someone gets up and starts you stirring the pot, fine. They, they, they get what they get. Um, or it's expected. Like I expect people to, to yell at me for what I do on my show because I stir the pot and I don't care. But when people attack the, the, the less of us who don't ask for it in any way, um, when I've done that, it, it's been because my identity was so not where I need it to be. Um, and so dude, I a hundred percent agree, uh, with that entire statement right there, I just had to just to pause and, and say that because like that is that is incredible truth in a nutshell right there of toxic masculinity feeding in to toxic uh, uh, complementarianism into a toxic church. Like that is just yeah. the trinity of, of bad church right there. Yeah, and it's interesting because the man who was a who, the man who was a man after God's own heart, David, loved to sing. Yep. You know, he, you know he. Uh, he he what even jesus jesus is a man who's playing with kids he's a man who's um gentle with women 
a man who is, you know, kind and soft spoken, even when everyone else is going off, going on ham on a sit on a woman. He's the one who comes in and speaks with gentleness yep. and with affirmation. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is a member of the Godhead, um, has the words, hey, when you're making an appeal to an older man, you do so as a spiritual father to an older woman, a spiritual mother to a sit to your peer a sister in all purity. And so throughout the Bible, you have these conceptions of masculinity that look like gentleness and nurturing. Again, even the, the Apostle Paul's language and, and Jesus too, this nurturing language, gentle language, kind, you know, saw all these kinds of things. But now we just want to look at David, whip, uh, Samson whipping a bear apart. We want to look at David <laughs> cutting off a head. Right. And we look at Jesus chasing you out with a temple. And it's like it's, it leads to such a degree, such an imbalance where oh, it's yeah. like oh, the, these men were bold men. But these men were uh, complex individuals who were at one moment bold, were bold enough to chase men out of the temple, yet gentle enough that children wanted to play with them. And I can guarantee that children ain't coming to play with a lot of these people on social media. <laughs> they, 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 got no, they got no sisters who would wipe their hair or, you know, wipe their, their feet with their hair and perfume. And there ain't no children that are going to want to come and play in their lap. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, again, we, we don't think in those kinds of categories. Right. And, but so, but it, it, it's interesting that the, the loudest voices regarding biblical manhood are the ones with, in my opinion, have the most skewed, at least not all of them, but some of them who have been speaking have the most skewed uh, grasp of what manhood is. And yeah. it, and to me, it seems like they are speaking more out of an in insecurity than they are actual scripture, because they're going beyond what is written in scripture and coming up with new laws and regulations and expectations yeah. uh, that the Bible does not set. And that's something, you know, that's, that's just going up and up and up and up. Like, uh, you know, we attribute um, those type of men, like we were just talking about, into that power structure, into the abuse and the fundamentalist and the church, um, keeping gifted women shepherds down. Um, you know, whatever side of the fence you on, like, like my wife can teach anyone the Bible 9,000 times better than I can. Um, she is gifted in teaching, um, and, and doing that type of stuff. She is, I, I'm not, my gifts are in other areas that, that God gave me, but to, to sit here and like you said, hear people not just go, Hey, I disagree with what you're doing, wanting to, to teach, you know, in the Bible at a church, you know, God made you a little bit different than me. So obviously you can't teach the Bible, um, you know. But then attacking women like Beth Moore just for doing what God has called them to do. Nothing more. Yeah. She is just living out yeah. her, her path. And, 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 and being blessed by God of it. Yeah. Of, and, and just seeing the, the fruit, which, which again, which is why at the end of the day, it all comes back down to power. It's it's not about it's not it's not theolo it's not it's not theology. Nope. Um, it's not about the Bible because it's not in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> what it ultimately is is it's about power. Yeah. And um and so again as we talk we I I do believe that there are certain dynamics even subtle dynamics within evangelicalism theologically and culturally that that bring about a 
a a damaging or a uh, concerning dynamic as it relates to power. Yeah. And 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 people don't really engage with that of 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 how the theology and certain convictions are actually rooted in in a in a, in a power struggle. They're not actually rooted in in an actual desire for biblical fidelity or theological fidelity. And it's always been the case. So again, slavery was defended um, using the Bible and using this using a theology, and that slavery was all about power. Yeah. And whether that was economic power, whether that was social power, whether that was uh, power in the sense of being um, superior uh, biologically to other people. Um, Jim Crow was about power. You're going to eat here. You're going to drink there. You're going to do these things, and we're going to defend it. And, and, and for those white moderates who are like King Don't March, that was about power. Yeah, they used yep. Bible and theology, but at the end of the day, it was you're, you're disrupting the power dynamics and we don't want you to do that. You just need to wait until someone get until we give up our power. Yeah. And so the the history of evangelicalism has largely been a history about uh, the about the pursuit of power and justifying that pursuit through theology and Bible. And um, until it reconciles that dynamic, um, it's going to continue doing that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and um now and again, I want to be clear here. I think it happens on both sides. So like for me personally, I'm the guy that gets it from both. I think that I think that uh I'm just going to keep it frank and say that I think that white progressives are just as uh, racist and just as power hungry, especially over people of color, um as people on the far right. Oh yeah. Um and and I see that all the time. It's uh, for me, it's um, I do not I would not consider my I'm not a hyper complementarian. Right. Um, I don't even really use the language of complementarian because to me that's more of a, 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 a the whole egalitarian complementarian thing is more of a white um, beef uh, that's happening. When you look at the black church, you have a you have a pastor who is like the spiritual father, and then you have the first lady who is basically like. Um, his uh, his right hand man, a woman, right, right, and she's esteemed, she's honored, she carries a lot of power in the church. They're looked at, they're called the first family, and and so the the dynamics of a of of a woman having authority or power in the church is just super different within that culture than you find over in this culture, which is right. should a woman teach or not? <laughs> you know, <laughs> over there you got prophetesses, you got the first lady, you got, you know, it's, it's just, it's just a very different thing. Wow. You know, wow. that, that, you know, between the two different sides that's happening there. But if I say that, Hey, I think women can teach and women can preach. Even if I say that I agree that I think that uh, the the role the office of pastor should be reserved for a man because I, I believe in some degrees that's like a, that's the role of like a spiritual father, um, but I if you, so even if I hold to that and just say I believe women should teach or women can preach, I want to get yelled at and snapped at and called a heretic from the hyper complementarians. Right. If I don't acquiesce. And say, hey, I think that women should, you know, can can be pastors and embrace full-on complementarianism. I get attacked on that side for being a sexist misogynist. You know, if <laughs> I don't, and, and so on both sides, it's either you, you agree and conform to what I believe is right, right. otherwise we're going to ostracize you. Yeah, which is both, which is a power play on both sides. You know, and so I, I think that. It, it absolutely happens over here as well on the left as it regards to this power dynamic. Right. But 
I do think on the right, as it relates to evangelicalism, there is a long, centuries-long um, history. And I'll quite be frank, it doesn't just start here. Even if you trace it back to Europe, oh, yeah. there's a very oh, yeah. long history of Christianity be, being used um, in order to obtain power. Yeah. And typically it's even gone side by side where, yes, we believe Jesus. Yes, we love Jesus, but we want that power, too. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to marry power and the gospel, and we're going to bring that together and wield both together hand in hand when the gospel has actually turns power on its head. Yeah. And so you try to you try to marry them together when one actually completely devastates the other in regards to how it's understood from a worldly perspective. It just doesn't work. And when you try to wed them together, it leads to abuse of power and profound pain for many people. Well, yeah, because, I mean, Jesus came to take our chains and to take our burdens and our sorrows and our pain. So it, I mean, the gospel makes power freedom. Um, and, and so, yeah, and, and, and that, that has always been something I, I found funny in culture. Um, they're not culture, but in history, uh, like the Spanish Inquisition and all these other people and the Pope and all this stuff, you know, like we're going to have this absolute power and we're going to storm in and tell you how to do everything. And it's just always boggled me of how we can believe this freedom of the gospel of love undying and all these uh, miraculous blessings. But yet we believe also that there's mass restrictions. And if you don't follow these nine, two, three tenants, whatever you believe, um, you're just not going to get in. Um, we're not saying we're going to hell, but we don't know where you're going, you know, type of answer. Um, yeah. But with all of that, um, with all the stuff we talked tonight about tonight, um, how do we fix this? Like, like, what do we do to fix um, the power structure, um, the the racial bias, um, the stigmas? Like, like, what is something we everyday people can do in the pews that that can just help start fixing this? Is it raising our kids differently? Um, is it standing up? Is it you know, you picketing churches? What what is it? Yeah, I think so. I think that the I think that Jesus and the scriptures give us a very clear answer that's simple and yet profound and, and and complex for that matter. And that answer is that the pursuit of the Christian's life is love. And that's what that is. The, that is the role of the Holy Spirit in the heart of believer. The Holy Spirit is cultivating divine love. He's the through regeneration. When someone is born again, right. um, the Holy Spirit uh, regenerates them. And what he births in them is a love for God. Then right. through sanctification, the Holy Spirit grows that love for God and grows love for neighbor. And specifically, a, specific, a unique kind of love for the body of Christ. Uh, John 13, 34, 35, by this, the word knows that you're my disciple. Your love for one another. That's a spirit of what's love right. that is being cultivated in the heart of believers. And so I think that the, the, the answer in one sense is that the pursuit of the Christian is to be a pursuit of comprehensive love. Love for God and love for neighbor, love for the people of God, love for the church. And when that's out of whack, 
uh, what you end up having is you kind of have this bias in love and it leads to all kinds of issues. So like within evangelicalism, uh, the focus of love is simply on is individualistic. It's just me and God got this love thing going on. Yeah. Um, forget about neighbor. Yeah. Uh, forget about the church. Uh, it's me and God. And 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 so you and that causes a lot of problems. I think the more that we pursue comprehensive love, uh, the more that we end up um, that overflowing in all the various areas of life and changing the way that things are navigated. When we're overflowing in love, we also are going to be overflowing in compassion and empathy. Instead of questioning our brothers and sisters, we're going to be listening to them. Um, all this can really be wrapped up. But First Corinthians 13, love is patient and love is kind. It doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't insist on its own interpretation. It doesn't insist that you must conform to it. It doesn't con- insist that you uh, you obey to its rules. You know, love is is going is not going to insist. It's going to be willing to come alongside someone. Um, it believes all things, hopes in all things. It's patient. It's kind. You know, and so I think at the end of the day, the the biggest problem that the church has right now is that it lacks comprehensive love. Um, either you got individualism that sees love as just being between people and their God. Um, you can have liberalism, which just sees um, um, love between man and neighbor. And so forget about God. You know, forget about even the church. It's all about activism and just serving the community. Right. Um, you can you can have love that is just more an occultic level where it's all about the church. So we're going to think about God and we're going to think about our little country club type church. But right. We're going to forget about the community. We're going to forget about neighbor. So you can have all these different ways where love is not comprehensive, but it's more targeted towards different things. And when that happens, what you ultimately have is you have people being neglected. And so I think that when Christians pursue a comprehensive love, then that love is going to be for God. The love for God is going to overflow into love for the church. And that love for God in the church is going to overflow to love for the community. And that's going to lead to people pursuing justice. It's going to lead to people advocating for abuse. It's going to lead to people caring for children and protecting them because God, Jesus says that if anyone harms these little ones, it's going to be worse you know, you, you get that whole narrative. And so I think that the goal is is I know it's, it sounds cliche, but it really is. Uh, the goal it really is to pursue love. It's just to pursue love in a comprehensive spirit empowered way, not the kind of superficial love that is fairly marked the church um, here in America, uh, which is, again, more of a superficial kind of love. Right. And so. Yeah, so you you can talk about well, we need to be more aware of these kinds of things about what we need to be more aware about what's happening in the community. You love your neighbor, you're going to pursue awareness. We need to be more aware of what's happening in the church and the wounded sheep. And if you truly love the church, you're going to be learning and caring and listening to the wounded sheep in the church. You know, so again, the list just goes on that it really is that foundational thing that of love that propels all those other kinds of things. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I mean that that's. That's perfect because honestly, it's the the simplest answer, um, and I'm of the sound mind. Usually, the simplest answer is right, um, <laughs> you know, and because it is, we, we all just, hope so. <laughs> well, well, yeah, yeah, because well, it is love. Um, I mean, it's the biggest theme in the Bible is undying love, um, non conditional love, um, and it's not selfish. It, like like all the things you it, that's all it is. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a beautiful answer 
to uh, an unfortunate life, I guess, in the church for a lot of people uh, nowadays um, on both sides um, of the spectrum. So, um, yeah. So you heard it. Love. You got to love. Um, and you got to love <laughs> well and right. Um, but yeah. So uh, thank you for coming on the Reapcast. Um, I have enjoyed my, my time. Um, I feel um, enlightened by you. Um, I feel encouraged by, by our conversation. Um, but uh, where can people find you um like if they want to know more where where can they they hit you up at yeah uh the best place i'm, I'm very active on twitter probably too active um <laughs> and that's uh <laughs> at kyle james howard and um again at kyle james howard and then my website www.kylejhoward.com um, my website has everything from my articles to podcasts to uh videos all my work more or less is is all uh, put there on my actual website. And so that would be the best resource to kind of get a comprehensive view. But then again, you can follow me regularly on uh, Twitter. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what do you have coming um, soon? Um, basically, what do you got coming down the pipeline that we can maybe help you get some people excited about? Yeah. So I'm, I want, I'm, I'm, I have, I'm talking with three different publishers right now on three awesome. different book projects, trying to put things in order to see what I'm going to tackle. Right. Um, uh, there's going to be books on racial trauma. It's going to be an academic and then a book and then a lay a book for lay people on uh, race-based trauma. Okay. And then I'm uh, the primary book. The first thing that I'm probably going to be working on is a book on uh, spiritual trauma. Um, awesome. That that's kind of like where all my attention is kind of on right now. Um, apart from that, my primary work right now is counseling, uh, again, spiritual abuse, spiritual trauma, racial trauma. Um, I don't charge uh, for counseling for people who have racial trauma because of right. church-related issues, spiritual trauma. Right. It's all supported by uh, through my patrons. Um, awesome. I, don't, I don't believe that people should have to pay for their own soul care. When they've been wounded by the church, I, I just I just can't go. I just can't do that. That's if awesome. people have the money, then you know more power to them. I don't say no. I take donations, but right. <laughs> uh, I, I don't I don't have a fee there. And so uh, people who want to uh, partner with me in that can of course uh, look at my Patreon. But apart from that, my main thing is I'm doing is going to be counseling, and then uh, and writing. Um, this summer is going to be a busy writing uh, season. Um, as I'm going to be trying to get a lot of, um, um, again, leeway on those books. Right. And then uh, also kind of relaunch my podcast as well, um, Quorum Deo podcast and my counseling podcast called Soul Care. I'm going to uh, get more consistent with trying to relaunch those as well. Awesome. That is amazing. And I can't wait to read your books and to hear your shows, man. Uh, um, like I said, when we started, I you know, follow you on Twitter and it's it's just it's all good. Um, God is definitely there with you and in, in pointing where you go. Um, and I, I look forward to uh, your future ventures and everything. Uh, so, but I appreciate yeah, that. No problem, no problem. So, all right, guys, um, it's been a wonderful show. You know where to find us Apple, Spotify. By now, y'all know where to go. So, uh, yeah, um, again, it was an honor having you on, sir. And uh, this has been the Recast. <laughs>